several years ago, I felt a deepening uh, sense of restlessness within my own soul. Uh, back in the fall of 2013, um, I put this on for you guys. You guys hear me all right? I felt a, uh, just that deepening senselessness within my own soul, this restlessness. And, and in basically December of 2013, I graduated from the seminary uh, with my MDiv. Uh, all the while, during undergrad and grad school, I was working toward the pursuit of pastoral ministry, you know, full-time vocational ministry. But as I ended up graduating, I entered into a season of life in which I just began waiting. And, and really, it was being to wait upon the Lord's timing like never before. I say that because things where I was uh, serving at the local church were changing all around me. And the position that I had hoped for, that I had worked for in my own mind to achieve and to secure in time was never granted to me. And I felt let down. This hope was deferred. This idea of going ahead and, and serving at this church that I had loved so dearly was never put into the same motion that I had. Uh, see, coming up to this point, all along the way, I had been interning at the church and serving there for a number of years and uh, working even in the seminary, training other people and helping them to plug into various ministry roles. And then I found myself for a good long while waiting to enter into the ministry as well. And I felt lost. I felt like, man, what is, what is the good of this time of living? It was beautiful, though, because in the midst of that prolonged waiting, this hope that was deferred around early 2014 for me, as the Lord began to really slow me down, He also began to work on my heart in ways that I had never known before. He began to prove to me that His plans were not for me necessarily to plug right into full-time ministry as a young 25-year-old, but rather to wait a while hold off, to keep on serving and find other ways to, to use the skills and abilities that he had given me, but to wait. And his plans proved in time to shape me radically at the core of who I am to this day. And I can say that because of what he did in my life. His plans, in essence, in hindsight, now I recognize, were actually plans to mature me in different ways that I had not matured yet as, again, a young 25 that point. There were plans to draw me closer, though, beyond even growth and maturity, to the heart of God himself. For anybody who's experienced suffering or prolonged waiting, hope being deferred, you probably know what I'm talking about. The sense of waiting upon the Lord, where what you were hoping for, what you were anticipating, even perhaps wrongly expecting, such as I was back then, where these things just don't come to be. And all of a sudden, you're left with nothing but the Lord himself. Nothing but the heart of Christ for you, in front of you. Well, during this time of my own life, Scripture itself became all the more endearing to me. And hymns, such as the hymns that we just sang this morning, hymns that I like to refer to as theology on fire, if you will, just wonderful theological deep truths concerning God and his bounty toward us in Christ became all the more comforting toward myself. I noticed that over time, during even that season of life, though, those hymns, such as the ones that we just sang, began to fuse their way and meld their way into even my prayers, the 
One of those hymns that I don't think we've sung here in a while is the song in the hymn called Abide With Me by the old Scottish pastor uh, Henry Francis Light. Just weeks before Henry Light passed away, he penned these marvelous words that the church has sung for the last almost 200 years now, this song called Abide With Me. And I'd love to just simply quote these words for us before we get to the reading of the scripture in Psalm 110 this morning. Because it fits so well. Henry Light said these words, I need thy presence every passing hour, for what but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? And who like thyself, my guide and my strength can be? Help of the helpless abide me. And as he also said, through cloud and sunshine abide me. For instance, in these times of waiting and watching that we often find ourselves leaning again upon the heart of God. Suffering goes hand in hand with leaning into the heart of God. Now this morning we're going to be taking a bit of a sidestep, as I alluded to a moment ago, a sidestep from our series in Acts. But if you recall, our series the last couple of weeks, going through chapters 4 and 5 in particular, have focused broadly upon this idea of persecution, trials, tribulation. Fun things to talk about, for sure, of course, as I said no one ever. But this is an intentional sidestep. Because if we look at just the narrative of Acts and this idea of persecution coming from the early church and persecution that continued to roll out over time without recognizing the heart of God for us in the midst of our suffering, we'll miss the whole point of our suffering in the first place. See, I believe the early church made it through, not just by their own grit, by their own tenacity, by their own persistence, like we talked about last week, but rather by leaning upon the heart of God. Their very souls open and bearing before Him, leaning upon the everlasting arms of God. Now as we pick back up again, starting next week with this series and Acts, we will see that suffering always was attended with moments of rejoicing and we see resistance against Christ's kingdom of grace, even as those seeds of the gospel were being sown and very much fruit. But so it is with us. And that's why this topic of suffering and the heart of God this morning is of such importance for us. Because we too experience, even here and now, as Derek was just alluding to in the pastoral prayer, moments of longing for glory and hoping for it also facing the restlessness within our own souls. We witness both the advancement of God's kingdom but also, and the joys that it brings, but also these moments of suffering in various ways in our lives. So how do we deal with these things? Well, if you're like me, it's all too easy to end up bottling up your suffering, to end up enshrining it within your own soul and not wanting to bear it before other people let alone God in prayer, as we just sung about. We often think, unfortunately, that the spiritually mature thing to do when it comes to facing suffering is to just hold it within us, rather than learning to express these things before God our Father who cares for us, and, at a human level, to share them with time-tested, trusted confidence, safe people. 
Well, last week I alluded to the fact that Christ's rule and reign are what compel us forward in the Christian life in the midst of trials and tribulations. But here, you're going to see in Psalm 110 this theme of recognizing the relationship between suffering itself and the heart of God. The rule and reign of Christ, though, as that comforts and speaks into our hearts of all things. And so my proposition for us this morning, which you can find in the bulletin, uh, I'm beginning to make some notes for you all going forward, uh, is this, this big idea of evil. That as we suffer for the sake of Christ, we do well to rest in the heart of God for us. See, in other words, the purpose behind our sufferings is never going to be lost on us if we end up knowing and learning to know the heart of God for us. So with that being said, let's come to the text this morning in Psalm 110 and read of Christ's rule and reign and how that speaks specifically to our own situations here in this life. The word of God in Psalm 110 says the following. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy godness. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter sheeps over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you. Let's come before him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I recognize that these things that we just read of things that are too marvelous for us to fully understand or to grasp. And yet we thank you that as your word is preached, uh, that Christ is presented first and foremost in his power and in his glory. And so we ask by the Holy Spirit that he would be the one uh, who is stirring within our hearts and illuminating the scripture for us. As we read of Christ's rule and reign, that you, O Holy Spirit, would shed light upon things, and use these things to comfort us, and to guide us in your grace. God, we ask that as uh, your word is preached now in this time, uh, that I would simply get out of the way and be nothing more than a vessel of your mercy in this place. Lord Jesus, we thank you, though, that you are the one who has preached first to us this message of peace and reconciliation with you, Father. And so, Lord Jesus, may you be exalted in all these things. Pray on this in your <clears throat> mighty and holy name. Amen. Well, churches, we just read uh, Psalm 110. Did you recognize a couple of distinct relationships going on here in this text? Uh, I see two kinds of relationships very distinctly, even here in our text this morning. One between, and this is first and foremost here, between the Lord 
which we see here in the word Lord in all caps, and the other word Lord, meaning God the Father and God the Son, right here in this text. But we also, of course, see an exchange, essentially, between the Lord Christ and all of the implicit benefits in the gospel toward us as people. So again, we see these two relationships between the Father and the Son, but also the Son and all who are in the Son. It's essentially uh, the results that we see here of the Son's rule and reign that are right before our eyes. And these twofold themes are almost like couplets right before us. Two sections. One in verses 1 through 3, in which there is this notion of a, of a pleasant inheritance that we as Christ's people enjoy. But also this notion in verses 4 through 7 that you may pick up on of a sense of this peaceful dominion that Christ's rule and reign bring about. So, pleasant inheritance and peaceful dominion. We're about to see these things this morning. Now, in order to capture the essence, though, of Psalm 110, it's important that we understand this primarily. That this psalm, in and of itself, is like a sword that divides. This psalm, for those of us who are in Christ, is just filled with the bounty of the gospel. It's brimming with all kinds of promises that we see here, verses 3 and 6, etc. And yet, for those who are not in Christ, this same psalm, it's almost like a stench. It's almost like something that is um, just something that you want to evade or get away from. Because when you look at the text, you see all kinds of words that sound a little alarming, to say the least. Look again over the psalm, you see such words as enemies, mighty scepter, rule, day of your power. Words like shatter and wrath, and even the word corpses. None of these things sound too appealing at first glance. These are all, however, though, alarming words that are purposed to enliven our senses and to help us grasp the full nature of what is going on here in Psalm 110. For the same reason, though, however, they are purposefully chosen words by God who is fine. Because all of these words in this psalm, and even those alarming words, Circle one key idea. This idea has to do with the union of Christ. The union of Christ. See, if we are identified with Christ, we don't experience all of the negative implications of these things that we just read judgment, shattering, wrath, all of these kinds of emotions. Rather, if we are in Christ, we experience safety from all of these same things that we just read. But if we are not identified with Christ, we do, of course, experience these things. We experience the full malevolence of sin and the impending end of sin itself, which is death. The idea of corpses, as it talks about here. And so we are met with this question that divides us immediately as we read this. Are we in Christ? Are we not? But to go deeper, to put it a little differently, are we, in essence, resting upon Christ? Are we resting upon Christ as we experience the hardships here in this life? And as such, do we recognize 
that in Christ we have a pleasant and beautiful inheritance. It is true of us, just as it was true of him. Well, again, if you will, at verse 1 of Psalm 110. Because Psalm 110, verse 1, begins with this truth. The Lord, God the Father himself, is the one who gave all authority to the Son at the time of his ascension. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18, what we know of as the Great Commission, that we've already alluded to a few times, even throughout our series in the book of Acts, Jesus said these words, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. And in Acts 1, 8, in the beginning of our series in the book of Acts, we were reminded of this truth that Christ, based upon nothing short of his authority over all things, commissioned the apostles to make disciples of every ethnicity, bringing them into the church. Christ himself, based on his own authority, promised the presence of the Holy Spirit to guide and to enable and empower them in the midst of all that they were about to face. And so Christ sent them out to bear witness to his death and the resurrection against all the odds in the earth. And so all of these events that we've considered in our series on Acts, Acts 1 through 5 at this point, were in essence all things that Psalm 110 foretold and prophesied about in advance. What were these things? It was the rule and reign of Christ over all the earth, starting at the point of his ascension, as we see in Psalm 110. Now, where do we get this idea? We see this right here in verses 1 through 2 of our psalm this morning. Let's look again at this, if you will. It says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth your mighty scepter from where? From Zion, the highest of heavens, if you will, the highest of all thrones, rule in the midst of your enemies. See, such an irrevocable guarantee from the Father to the Son was set forth from eternity past, and yet, as we saw, fulfilled in the events in Acts chapter 1. These things that were promised were then met in real time, just as Christ ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. But there is this certain key phrase here in Psalm 110 that I don't want us to overlook or miss. And it's this key phrase right here. Rule, in essence, until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, one more time. Until I make your enemies your footstool. See, the God whose word never returns void or without what it was accomplished or set up to accomplish will one day actualize the subordination of all things under the rule and the reign of Christ Jesus our Lord. And this rule and reign is not simply some futuristic event, although there is a sense about that in which it won't be entirely fulfilled until the end, that day of wrath as it talks about. But it is something that is already here, now, beginning to roll out and unfold before us. It's this marvelous truth of the advancement of the kingdom of Christ that began right there as he was resurrected and ascended. 
I want to remind us again of that word, until. See, it says, until, um, until I make your enemies yours. The idea of the word until carries with it this sense of something that is already begun and yet not fully in the Hebrew language, it uses this phrase when it says that the Lord sends forth your mighty scepter from Zion. This idea of sending forth, though, is this progressive evolving, this progressive movement of what is happening with the kingdom of Christ, this progressive continuation of the rule and the reign as Christ's mighty scepter is stretched out over all of the nations. See, in essence, the Lord God the Father took that scepter of Christ that we read about in Psalm 110 and stretched it out and is still yet still stretching it out over all the nations. This is a beautiful thing because every field and every valley of the earth belongs to him. And one day, based upon this same guarantee that we have in Psalm 110, every nation, tribe, and tongue will one day in their own language Hear the gospel of Jesus and his power and communion of all things. And so, friends, we can rejoice in this. We can rejoice in the fact that the rule and reign of Christ are indeed, for us who are in Christ, a pleasant thing, a pleasant grief for everyone who's found in him. See, if he is truly the resurrection and the life, we, in essence, by our union with him, will reap. His life benefits. If Christ is truly the Prince of Peace, we will also reap and experience the peace that He has suffered. If He is the Man of Sorrows who has suffered for us, we ourselves are also people, in essence, who will be able to share His sufferings with Him. He who knows our weaknesses and our frailties will not ever despise us. And his rule surely extends over all of the areas of our lives as such. But it even, and this is where we can take heart, his rule and reign even extend over all of his enemies in his life. And one day, all of those who eventually hear and turn to Christ will also be those who continue to carry that message of Christ to the end. People of all kinds of positions of influence and authority will be swayed under his mighty scepter. And so under his rule, this is the beauty and pleasantry that this brings. We ourselves, as believers, can now freely offer on the day of his power ourselves, all of our being, Based upon his righteousness. As it says here, people who are dressed in his holy garments of righteousness. And so, as Christ's kingdom of grace continues to expand across the globe, and the peoples from every far distant land come to a saving faith in Jesus, his people, including us, will one day be seen for who we truly are. Beloved his own precious children. Blood-bought, washed clean, inheritors of his life. 
And so in this reign of Christ, which began in his ascension, there will be no end. I love how Psalm 110, verse 3, puts this. It says this, From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Right here in our own text, we see no closing of that day, no sign of dusk, only dawn, only the beginning of what Christ has enacted for us. Of the reign of Christ, in essence, there will be no end. And so as his believers, we have the benefits of all that to read. So do we know this? Are we resting in this? Even when we face suffering and trials and tribulation, are we resting upon these precious promises that are given to us in the gospel? If so, our inheritance is in Christ. What a beautiful thing. But the goodness of Psalm 110 doesn't just end right there. It continues on in verses 4 through 7, in which we see not just how Christ blesses us personally, but going on in the rest of the psalm, how Christ blesses us and affects our entire livelihoods in essence. And so it implicitly asks us this, not just are we resting in Christ, yes or no, it asks us this question right here. Are we resting in Christ? in light of his authority and his power over all things. Well, here in verse 4, we see, in essence, the linchpin of the entire psalm. What does it say? It says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order But what then has the Lord sworn? Well, in essence, as it tells us right here, that the Lord will not change his mind and that Christ belongs to the same order of the priesthood as Melchizedek. But that then begs a big question of us all. Who is this guy, Melchizedek? <laughs> Unless you've read through Genesis or Revelation or Hebrews or even some of the Psalms I refer to him more recently, this shadowy figure, Melchizedek, might be a little, uh, might be a little aloof toward who this guy is. Um, he himself, in Genesis 14, is a bit mysterious. Uh, right before God made a covenant with Abraham, known as Abraham at that time, he sent Melchizedek to Abraham to bless him. This guy, Melchizedek, was actually at the time the king of Salem which is now known as Jerusalem, Salem being the ancient city of Jerusalem before it was changed in its name and in its control. But this guy, Melchizedek, was also, as Genesis 14, uh, verses 19 and 20, and the surrounding context point out, he was also this priest of the Most High God. So in essence, this guy, Melchizedek, was a king and a priest, and as he came to Abram, he ends up prophesying over Abram as well, as a prophet, priest, and kingly figure, all in one. He appeared to him, though, saying these words in Genesis 14, verses 19 through 20. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your 
And so in essence, Melchizedek blesses both Abram, but also the one true Melchizedek also, we know from Genesis 14, brought bread and wine as a priest of sorts to commune with Abram, to bless him with that table fellowship, that priestly table fellowship. And in turn, Abram ended up paying tithes to Melchizedek. A tenth of everything that Abram had acquired, he brought before Melchizedek and said, look, I want this to go to you. And essentially here we see the ministry of the church, the ministry of God amongst his people. I bring a tenth of all of this for this purpose. And so in essence, Abram gave back unto God for the purpose of God's shepherding, care, and ministry through the priest, king, and prophet of his life. So what that has this to do with Christ? Because this might all sound a little archaic to us, unless we might be more well-versed in what this all means about his, his relationship to Christ. Well, Jesus is here in Psalm 110 and many other places throughout the scriptures, like Hebrews and more Psalms as well. He's likened to Melchizedek. He's likened to this prophet, priest, and kingly figure. Uh, David himself, who was king over Jerusalem centuries later, in also a priestly and prophetic way, wrote the psalm of moved by the Holy Spirit and recognized that the Son of God, the Lord Christ, was the better and true figure that Melchizedek himself pointed us to. David himself, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these words from the voice of God, the Father unto the Son. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As such, concerning Christ then, the true prophet, priest, and king, not of the Levitical line, but rather of his own special line and special authority given by God the Father himself, much like Melchizedek was, all glory and power and dominion as the one true Son of God belong to him and him alone. And so we, his people, are commanded to, just like Abram did for Melchizedek, offer up tithes unto Christ and his service. We are also, like Melchizedek, invited to dine with Christ, just as Melchizedek did with Abram. We are invited to dine with him and to be blessed by none other, though, than Christ, as we see here in Psalm 9. The words of uh, verses 4 through 7 seem to be echoed throughout the New Testament, especially in Ephesians 1, verse 3, where it says the following concerning us. Very similar to Melchizedek's own words to Abram. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the God part of it. But also this, God through the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We see the same echo of the blessing of Christ being also then given to his people. The spoils of the victor's war, so to speak, given to us as people. And so we, in response, uh, just like Abram did, offer up not only our tithes and our livelihoods, 
and to Christ and his service. But all of our needs, everything about us, every talent and ability and gift that God has given us, we give back in return. Why? For ours is an eternal and pleasant inheritance. And we are also partakers of Christ's peaceful dominion. Consider how Psalm 110, verse 5, speaks of Christ's dominion as being marked, though, by peace. Not just pleasantries, but true, deeply felt peace. Come whatever may. It says this concerning Christ. The Lord, meaning the Lord Christ, is at your right hand. In other words, we see right here in our own text of Psalm 110 how Christ is, in essence, right at the hand of the Father. But, implicitly here in Psalm 110, we also see a picture of us also being at the right hand of Christ, with that kind of access to the throne of grace. For it says this in verse 5, the Lord, meaning Jesus, is at your right hand. Referring here, speaking directly to us as believers, Jesus is at our right we have that kind of quick and always ready access to him. What a beautiful truth. The passage goes on. It says this in verses 5 through 6. He, meaning Christ, will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide. In other words, all that stands against the rule and reign of Christ in sinful and utter rebellion against him will one day be shown as feeble, worthless, and meaningless in the end. Now this idea of corpses and judgment and shattering of chiefs and kings and all these things, again, it can sound at first glance to be this judgmental kind of behavior. But really when you think about it, is God truly good and all-powerful if he himself is not just and will one day deal with sin and evil? Thankfully, we know from scriptures that God is the just and holy judge of all the earth who will do what is right. And he will, as it's even guaranteed here, deal with sin, all of it, whether for those of us in Christ upon the cross or come judgment day against remaining sin, it will be dealt with. Justice will flow down. Justice will remain as King Jesus for reigns. So we know this truth from the scripture that God is just. And his just reign is not separate from his patience, though toward our sin. Even in the midst of our own sin, shows us kindness in the midst of our rebellion. For here we see us as his people, again, in verse 5, at his right hand. We who are sinners, yet simultaneously justified, right here, with him speaking of us, the Lord is at your right hand. Church, may we know and may we believe 
that the dominion of Christ is by way of its being laid out in front of us the most life-giving thing in all the world. For of Christ this is said at the end of our psalm. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. When you think about this picture of somebody stooping down to drink from a uh, flowing river along the side of a highway, it doesn't sound like a very peaceful thing at first glance. But rather what we see here is Christ stooping down and drinking from a running brook without an ounce of fear. And how could this even take place unless sin is completely put away? So in short, really, we see this idea of judgment from sin being done, completely accomplished, and the results of a sinless, perfect land of glory here as Christ in verse 7 stoops down and drinks from the book of our life. And without anything against him at this point, it says this, he will lift up his head. Believers in Christ, this is also true of us. We face trials and tribulations here in this life, yes, but there is a day coming in which we too will stoop down and drink from the brook by the way. All of us who are in Christ, as Revelation calls us out, and Isaiah, and so many other passages call out to us, come to the waters and buy. Come without money and buy without price. This cup of gladness, this, this wine, this drink of cold, refreshing water is life-giving. These are the things that we look forward to. And this boundless story of Christ is something that we, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials and tribulations, can even now tap into and be restored and find refreshment as we face things in life. But the question is for us here, how do we then open this treasure chest which is Christ? How do we tap into the peaceful bounty that we see here in the gospel? How do we open this up? Well, there is a key, figuratively speaking, for us here in this text. And it's right there in the middle, in verse 3. The key for us is right here. And it says this, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in what? In holy darkness. Holiness. Righteousness. In other words, we who belong to Christ are those who have been washed clean from the power of sin and its effects. We are those people who will one day be entirely free, even from his presence, which we wrestle with here in the day by day. For all other authorities, Chiefs, kings, even Christ's own enemies, as it's referred to here in Psalm 110, are all here seen in contrast to one group of people alone. Those who are right there in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Those who are held by him in the covenant or promise of the will of life based upon his grace. And this grace marked promise of life of Christ, which was made with Jesus Christ between him and the Father in eternity past, is offered to all whom his soul made an offering unto. For as Isaiah 53 says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. In essence, giving them these clothes of white, holy garments, righteousness. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of men and makes intercession for the transgressors. This, dear friends, is good news for us this morning. And it's in this we can take on. So as we conclude, I want to return to this idea of uh, suffering for the moment as we begin to wrap up. This idea of suffering and how it relates to the heart of God that I alluded to earlier. See, how does Christ's rule and reign then relate with our suffering itself? When we go through times where we are plagued with sins done against us, or sins within our own souls, and we feel the negative effects of them, or the hope that is deferred or prolonged waiting for God's handiwork in our lives, how do we deal with these things in light of Christ's rule and reign? Well, in short, when our eyes are pointed toward what Psalm 110 describes as the mighty scepter of Christ, which extends over all things in this life, we can then rest in the fact that whatever suffering we face in this life is going to be, and thank God, shortly, it will one day have an If he is truly king on this throne, and he is, what we experience in the here and now does not have the final it will be broken. In other words, our suffering has an expiration date. When we feel the weight of suffering, when we feel as if we can't go on at it alone, the dominion of Christ reminds us that we are never truly alone in the first place. We truly live under the smiling countenance of God our Father and Christ our Father. And so when we suffer as a result of sin, both sins against us and sin that we've done, we can yet remember that Christ is the one who clothes us in his perfect, holy, and righteous garments. If we are in Christ, the Lord will never change his mind concerning us as children. Ours is pleasant inheritance in Christ under his peaceful and So in closing, I'd like to remind us of that hymn, Abide With Me, uh, as Henry Light continued on, just again, just days before he passed away himself, he wrote these words. He says this, I fear no foe in light of the gospel. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? 
I triumph still if thou abide with me. Friends, that is true of us. So let's come before you. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God who is always with us till the end of the age. God, we thank you that the promise of Psalm 110 tells us that the dew of the morning belongs to you. The lush greenery that it produces are things that we get to enjoy. The goodness of the land of the living that you have secured for us is something that we have to look forward to. So may we know that our sufferings, the things that we face in this life, will all meet their end one day. And may you use these things to comfort ourselves, to remind us of the precious truths that God's grace. That in Christ we have such bounty as this. Bounty as far as the eye can see in the mind. So may we behold you, O Christ, in all your glory. May we know that we live under your outstretched, mighty right hand. Hold you mighty Savior. You are King Jesus. And may we worship you as such with gladness and with joy. And so we ask and pray all this in your holy name.